is the big ponder. My name is Harald. I'm a photographer and filmmaker who loves working in the street, seeing who and what comes my way. So let's talk about the street. Just what does it mean? Streets are common enough, but what do we understand by the word? Streets? Path? Roads? Highways? Everyone uses one as soon as you leave home. In the big picture, Roads have always been the facilitators of travel, trade and conquest. They bring people together. These could be expressions of power, but also expressions of hope. A way to go somewhere else. Or escape routes to flee oppression and misery. It's the same today. The smaller picture is a private one, enriched with stories. So let me go back and start on the small road by a farm in a tiny village in the southwest of Germany. This is where I come from. The road was our playground. Cars were so rare that we hardly ever had to make way for one. I often rode along on a neighbor's farm tractor, sitting in a cloud of diesel fumes and watching spellbound as the huge tires left patterns in the clay. Almost every day, we children would gather at the side of the road as an American convoy came driving through our village, the smiling GIs tossing candy to us from their jeeps and trucks. As a four- or five-year-old boy, I would imagine that Fury, the famous television stallion, might charge over the hill at any moment and greet me. The United States seemed quite close by. And in a way, the USA had long been nearby. Many people from the surrounding region had emigrated to the United States, starting in the early 1800s. In the 19th century, hundreds of thousands of Germans left their homeland for good. My area of Germany had its own special product, itinerant musicians. Thousands of them came from my region, the hilly country and villages of the Western Palatinate, what we call the Westphals. They embarked on foot, on wagons, and then by train and ship to travel the world. Many, maybe even most of these musicians, would return after months or even years abroad. Typically, the musicians would leave home in small groups of four to ten men. My great-grandfather was among them. There's only one surviving photo that shows him as a member of a band of six, holding a clarinet in his left hand. Over the course of some 20 years, he traveled various bands to the United States several times. This piece, Frühlingsklänge, was composed by Wandermusiker Otto Schwarz and newly arranged and recorded by Rundfunkorchester des Südwestfunks in Germany. I spoke with Dr. Tobias Wittmeier, who has been studying the itinerant musician of this region for years. In the beginning they wandered to France, to Belgium or to the Netherlands. The German word for itinerant or traveling musicians, Wandermusikanten, tells us that early on, for the most part, they wandered 
Sie wanderten Pathways, Shortcuts or Country Roads. As the transportation infrastructure improved during the 19th century, so too did their ability to travel further and further. The first time I left the area was at the age of 15. It was supposed to be the first day of school, but I cycled two hours down the road to the border with France. Near my hometown, I waved at my classmates on their way to school. I want to visit my pen pal in Chaumont, I told the border guard. He said, what? On the first day of school after vacation? He then got on the phone and called my father to come pick me up. The following year, I considered myself old enough to undertake a trip alone to southern France. Two weeks of construction work in Germany had put enough money in my pocket to pay for my trip, which was inspired in part by the movie of that time, Easy Rider. The myth of the road was there. The 60s soundtrack. Inside me, a fleeting patchwork of scenes and moods shaped by the United States of America. The night before I left, I felt pretty queasy. After I left the house, I felt fine. But what about a boy whose parents had sold their belongings in order to travel in the 1850s to an unknown country like America? Could the family stay together after arriving in America? Or would it be ripped apart by thieves pretending to be helpful agents? Would the family need to get more money from the home on credit? In those days, a 13- or 14-year-old like my great-grandfather would be in a fever of excitement before his first trip with a band of musicians traveling together on a steamboat. One of them might be insecure about his future. Another might have a clear plan about where they could make the most money. But both full of hope. To me, traveling was much easier compared to the fate of those two. I just had to wait on the roadside, hold my thumb out in the wind and wait until a car stopped to pick me up on the road again. The reality I found on the road satisfied and inspired me. The second car stopped for me on the highway near Mannheim, near the Rhine River. A teacher on a trip to southern France gave me a long ride and led me off very close to my destination early on the second evening. The Ardèche region some 900 kilometers away from home, near where the Ardèche River flows into the Rhône. On a small country road, I wandered past Pont Saint-Esprit. The dark greeted me with a loud trill of insect life and smells I didn't recognize. Now, time stood still. Dark days lay upon the landscape. The only noise was the murmuring water of the shallow Ardèche River where I was lying cooling down and daydreaming. I discovered loneliness as company as well when I was too shy to join other young people. After a week, I was back again on the asphalt. Some years later, I became a photographer, a street photographer. Photography helped me approach the world. It takes part in life. Exploring, celebrating, and suffering. It is an instrument for me to collect fragments of a personal reality and put them together into a mosaic. 
These images may look different from the image you see of yourself in the mirror. American photography was a big inspiration in helping me find my way. Robert Frank and Diane Arbus, to name at least two famous photographers, were important to me. Even though the art of each was so different from the other, I felt a kinship of temperament with both of them. Robert Frank traveled on a grant to photograph his version of America. He didn't chase after social meaning, like his mentor and friend Walker Evans, who, together with Dorothea Lang, Gordon Parks and others, documented the flight of thousands of farmers leaving the Great Plains or the Dust Bowl during the Depression, taking Route 66 to California. When his book, The Americans, was published in 1958, critics wrote, If this is America, we should burn it down and start all over again. Frank poured his melancholy about America into the photos he took. I met Duny for the first time in Munich's English Garden, Germany's biggest city park, similar to Central Park in New York. Gunny was sitting in the middle of a roadway with his dog lady beside him and didn't pay attention to anybody else. They were like sculptures draped in a net formed by shadows off the branches from surrounding trees and created on the ground. He was blowing on his harmonica just to produce sounds. You couldn't see his instrument because it was hidden in his big hands, dark as coal shovels. Six months later, I met Gunny again, surrounded by his buddies. Instead of traveling far, I began a film on a group of six homeless people. Becoming homeless isn't hard. There's just a thin line between an established life with daily routines, job and family, and finding yourself in the gutter. Maybe you lose your job, your home, or get divorced. Or all three. In this life, you don't need to play a game about yourself. Titles and prestige don't matter. It's only your personality that puts you on a place within the group. There was mutual support, even tenderness in the world of rudeness, that life produces when people live with their backs to the wall. As soon as alcohol came into play, situations often became out of control. I wasn't homeless, but being there with them, I felt like I was part of two worlds. But unlike Guni and his friends, I could return home. James and Melissa were one of the two couples in this group. Melissa was from London and had a commission for a collector of her paintings in Munich. There she met James, who was homeless. Melissa had left Munich from one day to the other. Some 35 years later, I learned about her story when she got in touch with me over the internet. She gave up drinking very soon after arriving back in England and has pursued her career as a painter ever since. In between, she gave birth to two kids, who are now adults. I do remember as a kid, I lived in London, and I loved, I had a little scooter, and I loved to ride my scooter around the streets. And I did start drawing on the streets, like the architecture and everything, when I was little. And um, when I went to Germany, obviously, you know, I was suffering quite badly from alcoholism. And um, and I, things were very different. I fell in love with James, and that was what provoked me 
to live on the street. I go back to England to home and warmth and money and everything I want. Do a bit of painting, have fame. But I know deep inside I'd always feel alone. The feeling waking up next to James is much better than waking up in a warm, luxurious flat with everything. Much better. I really like the feeling of being out there so that anything might happen, I might see things and there's so much possibility. Whereas inside, it kind of depresses me sometimes. And that's what I love about painting outside. One of the things is just the fact that so many things could happen, you never know, and hopefully you can include that or it goes into the painting, even though you're just painting a static thing in front of you. I think it all... I quite like the feeling of nervous energy that I get as well, I realised. Arriving for the first time in New York, I felt embraced by the city like a long-lost son. Everything was new, but it was familiar. The media had prepared me subconsciously, and I was invaded by the American way of life long before I put my first step on Manhattan's asphalt. And the crit John Randall Jr. had created in the 1850s didn't foresee what kind of buildings would be here. For me as a photographer, it was a source of a constantly changing light with different qualities and colors and a new experience of space. Whereas reaching out to Harlem was like entering another cosmos. Thinking of 125th Street, I can hear the sound of Marvin Gaye, Al Green, Nina Simone, Temptations. At first, I stayed in a bed and breakfast that was run by Francois, a young Frenchman, walking around the close-by neighborhoods with their brownstones, meant hearing and saying again and again, What's up, how you doing, when you cross someone in the street? As a white man and a foreigner, I had the feeling when entering this world that I had to pay more attention to my behavior than ever before. Taking snapshots the way I did could be misunderstood, so I turned mostly to confrontational style that helped me to talk to people in a direct way and to learn about the neighborhood and its people. You could find all kinds of street vendors, electronic devices, books and DVDs about slavery and the civil rights movement, bootleg music, countless hair salons and barbershops, Black Panther activists having their training day on top of Marcus Garvey Park. In the summertime, block parties take all over the place and Jazz Mobile, a stage on wheels, performs the golden days of jazz every week in another corner of Harlem. Houses with wooden porches and a garden in front reminded me of the American South, or being a customer in one of the many ancient barbershops that looked like something from a 50s film. They's tasting like candy. <laughs> Only two dollars. They're nice and sweet, brother. 
standing in front of the state building on 125th, across from the Teresa Hotel. A former newsman named Sam, who was 81, told me about seeing the Hindenburg over the Teresa Hotel in the 1930s, and how he later heard on the radio about the Zeppelin's catastrophe. And he talked about the day Malcolm X was murdered. Sam was going to go to that meeting, but missed it. Still today, his eyes get watery thinking about it. Or Joe Hammond called the Destroyer. Once he was the biggest name in street basketball in Harlem. Now he deals in second-hand items on the streets. I had the feeling Harlem was the public property of all African Americans. People took it seriously, especially when white people seemed to act like intruders. I learned that African Americans saw a difference between a white American and a white European. What are you doing here? Why are you taking pictures of this building? I heard an annoyed woman's voice from behind. I turned around and saw a young woman looking at me in a provocative manner. The building I was taking pictures of was empty, in poor condition. At first I felt kind of embarrassed and stunned at the same time. When she realized I was a foreigner, she calmed down. After a while, I understood. She thought I might be a kind of investor or an investor spy. I first met Brian on my way to the airport. We almost bumped into each other at Stiegelmeierplatz in Munich. We noticed each other because of the Leicas that hung around our necks. They were like our passports. Where are you going? he asked me. I'm on my way to New York, I said. I'm from New York. I'll be back there in two days, he answered. A week later, we were cruising around Newark and areas nearby in Brian's old Volvo station wagon. The back of his car looked like a Blommers workshop. It was around the year 2000. Brian was a friend of Robert Frank and printed all his photos as he did for Ellen Ginsberg. One late January afternoon, we stood on a small pedestrian bridge, crossing the railroad tracks between Newark and East Orange. The sunlight had a mild orange cast and made the neighborhood look nicer than usual. At the other end of the bridge, a young black woman was approaching us, packed into a green anorak. She seemed to be shy about the two white guys who were at least twice as old as she was. It was Brian who asked her if she would mind being photographed. At first, she was about to refuse, but Brian talked nice to her. After a couple of shots, she started warming up, started posing a little bit, and began to look nice for the camera. She was even smiling in a shy manner. One could see that her teeth were not in good shape, but she didn't care. Her narrow face framed by a short haircut, began to glow a little bit. Her eyes did too. Maybe the last rays of the sun gave her a little support. It was a very touching moment to watch this transformation caused by a curious camera. It's right raggedy around here. It's really right raggedy, honestly. It's right raggedy around here, honestly. I only lived here nine months, so... I was living on 3rd Street, we got burnt out, we moved to Kemi Spas and 1st Street. So my mother bought a house in Velsburg. So now it's like, mm, I'm here with a friend of mine and she's there, so it's okay. 
I don't mind, but this is raggedy right here. First of all, it's sitting right here with drug area, and they need to clean this shit up. This drug area? It's all this drug area. All this drug area, all this. Is it safe at night to walk around? No. Not really. Ryan has his own ideas about photography. I think they attracted a lot of um, reckless people. <laughs> and reckless and people who like to gamble kind of thing, you know, because I mean, that was part of the, the thing that was um, attractive to me was it was uncertain if you're if you call it street photography. I mean, you never knew if if you were getting the picture or you were not going to get the picture or some of the things along the way. Developing the film could go wrong. Everything, you know. So it was kind of a random, a random uh, thing. Even aside from the photography, you, there's other things can happen, you know. I never cared if, if I got a picture at all. I was just interested in the person, maybe, or the, um, or what they knew, you know. I wanted to enter their world, kind of thing, you know. I want to enter their uh, mind and know something, you know. I was attracted to. Um, The chaos. The world-famous Apollo Theater on 125th Street with its legendary amateur night shows was my goal. The amateur night show was the beginning for the career of stars like Aretha Franklin or James Brown. I wanted to do a film on the Apollo Theater and about winners of some of the amateur night shows. But things took a different route. I got to know Hazardous and his partner I.G. Off, two underground rap cats who already were published on a compilation in Germany. They became protagonists in my film. I followed them around for some time. Hip-hop is the way you live. It's a culture, you know what I'm saying? It's the way you dress, it's the way you walk, it's the way you think, the way you tie your sneakers, the way we wear our hat. Everybody want to be like us. You know what I mean? Everybody all over the world Wanna be like us. We started this. Straight right here, the Boogie Down Bronx, right here, straight like that. We started this right here. This is ours. It's been for years, underworld pioneers. Still considered new to the listeners' ears. That's on the block, be like, yo, why you taking so long? Like they don't know the politics, they know making a song. Now me, myself, I'm IG off flow, redefined. Known throughout the industry as the head of my time. No, I was spinning flows years before rappers delight. I'll be laughing When your kids be like, that shit's here tight. Wanna talk about the biz that the next man live? Next Wanna man talk live. about the bullshit your best friend did? Or that thug out shit? Yo, I ain't feeling you. I ain't feeling you. When it comes to the microphone, I'm flowing. I'm, I'm killing, killing you. you. I'm iller than you. I'm iller than you. Low spot. You blew the hottest on the street. I bet my name came up. Haiti Off was phenomenal as a rap artist. Once he had beaten the famous rapper KS1 during a battle. Haiti Off, or Chris, as he was called by his mother, grew up in Far Rockaway, Queens, a notorious hotspot for drugs and gang activities at that time. It was a point where I used to sell crack back in the days, like every other rapper, <laughs> but I grew out of that and I left the hustle game alone. I stopped hustling in 92 and never touched it again. It wasn't me. Once I had my seed, I knew that my firstborn was going to be here, Chris, that was dead. I was like, I'm gonna do this music thing, full ahead. Chris wanted to be a good father and was very concerned and serious about raising his kids. 
I always wondered what parents feel like, what a mother feels when she lets her child go out to play on the streets. Sandra built up the trust for her son Chris with words like this. He could talk to me about anything and everything. I wouldn't care. I told him if you something happened outside and you had to defend yourself and you killed somebody. God knows I said I hope in life that never happens. But no matter whatever it is in life, you can come to me and you can talk to me about anything. You don't have to worry about me being upset or or doing something to you or whatever. I said what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to help you in any way I can. So we had that understanding and he could always come to me and talk to me about whatever was going on. You also don't want to hear that your child is being forced to join a gang. And so he's scared that if he doesn't go out there and do whatever that they say, and he's scared about being jumped in and or being jumped out of a gang or, I mean, it had become a big thing at one point, this knockout thing that they had. You would go up and come by somebody that was like their challenge and stuff and whatnot. Like they would come past you, part of their initiation, a person, and they would, as they come by, they would punch them and they had to knock them out. That was up. He went upstate to live. He had moved from he moved from New York. He moved upstate. He tried to make a better way to get Christopher Jr. from around here because of the gang situation. They kept trying to pull his son into the gangs and stuff and whatnot. And he was trying to get him from out of that. So he got hit by the car. He wasn't going to make it and that they had taken him downstairs and they had aligned his body because all of his bones had been shattered and broken <sighs> and numb. Aitjof was hit by a drunken driver and ended up paralyzed. He was very close to his children until he passed away. I said the highest is the illness, hope you're ready for me. What? July 71, premature ejaculation. Intercourse with no protection, the immaculate conception. Raised in the far rock section, one hit too many. Mars and mother effing scooped me in, the arms are left and ran away. Then she moved back in with fam. Rams used to sneak and give me sips of beer from his can. Sit me on his lap, say I was part of a bigger plan. Slide tables, watch me perform with a brush in my hand. What the French poet Charles Baudelaire had to say about wandering could also be my credo, as I think about travel on streets and roads and airways. This is what I have learned. For the perfect flaneur, for the passionate spectator, it's an immense joy to set up house in the crowd amidst the ebb and flow of movement, amidst the ephemeral and the infinite. To be away from home and yet feel at home everywhere. To see the world, to be at the center of the world. Thus, the lover of universal life enters the crowd as if to an immense reservoir of electrical energy, or we could compare it to a mirror, or to a kaleidoscope gifted with consciousness and responding to its every movement, reproducing the diversity of life and the flickering craze of the elements of life. You've been listening to The Big Ponder. This transatlantic podcast is brought to you by the Goethe Institute in collaboration with the Bertelsmann Foundation and Rundfunk Berlin-Brandenburg. 
thanks to all our friends on both sides of the big pond that make this series possible.